TBH. Tech Business History. Hello. If you're looking for a witness to the dot-com boom in the UK, there's nobody better than my guest this week. Rory Kathleen jones is now the BBC's technology correspondent, but back then his BBC title was the Internet and Business Correspondent. Back in the late 90s, not content with chasing dot-coms all day, Rory also wrote the definitive book on UK dot-coms called Dot-Bomb. It's a great account of all the key stories, from lastminute.com to boo.com, and a great read. I wanted to ask Rory for an overview of the whole rise and fall of British dot-coms. So, Rory, thank you very much for doing this. Thank you. When we're looking at the British dot-com boom and bust, it was very brief compared to that of the United States, wasn't it? It was incredibly brief. It got going a lot later. Um, I'm delving back into history and think about 1998, effectively, with uh, the float of FreeServe split off from Dixon's. That kind of uh, signaled that there was a dot-com boom in the UK. Um, There'd been a huge amount of scepticism from the city until then. Then there was a sort of pile-in and lots of people tried to get their companies away. And it basically ended with the float of lastminute.com, which got away just in time in the middle of March 2000. And they were the the last escapees, really, and then everything went pop. Um, Lots of people got in, but very few people got out in time. Right. Because, as you say, FreeServe was a big success, but it was backed by a big established business. So what we think of as a sort of dot-com startup, which is some young people with an internet business, that, wasn't, that didn't start till slightly later. No, I mean, it was the, the float of FreeServe uh, that I suppose said to people, there is money to be made here. Um, and don't forget what an extraordinary event that was. So Dixon's, established high street retailer, Uh, quite a big company back in those days, decided to launch this quotes-free internet service. Um, And unsurprisingly, it took off rather rapidly. Uh, Decided to float it on typically sort of, you know, low levels of revenue. It went boom uh, and briefly was uh, in the FTSE 100 and was worth more than... Dixon's itself. So you had this extraordinary event happening, which kind of symbolised to lots of people the, the fact that there was this internet phenomenon and that there were huge amounts of money to be made if you could get in quickly enough. Because before that, or rivals to FreeServe anyway, were subscription models, whereas FreeServe was just taking a slightly a tiny fraction of the dial-in phone charge. Yes, don't forget, these were the days before broadband of dial-up internet. Um, and a couple of really clever people within the Dixon's organisation, including a chap called Ajaz Ahmed, came up with this model uh, of taking a tiny, tiny slice of the telephone charges, effectively, and said this will be viable as a business. Uh, and transformed internet access in the UK. I mean, they did a great job there because that meant that lots of people in, in, in 
in, the consumer internet was extremely young in those days. Lots of people suddenly decided they could have an internet connection. Right, so, so FreeServe came along, lots of people signed up for the internet, but the, the classic dot-com startup was, tended to be based in London and was young people with an idea, really, wasn't it? That's right. There were all sorts of networking events, and the, the, the kind of people that got involved were not necessarily, in fact, predominantly not techie people. They were sort of young marketing types trying to surf this new wave. Uh, if you think, for instance, of the classic one, lastminute.com, uh, Martha Lane Fox and Brent Hoberman, fresh out of Oxford, into the con- consultancy world, um, obviously young consultants looking at this new market come up with an idea and run with it. Uh, and that was typical. Those were the kind of people who were piling in. Now you were covering this as a journalist at the time. What was the media's attitude to all this? Well, I think it was much like the investment community. Um, uh, first, incredible scepticism. How can these tiny companies be worth anything? Uh, and then a desperation, a fear of missing out. Uh, I mean, that's certainly what drove the bubble, both in the UK and in the US. Uh, like any bubble, in the early stages, people say, it's worth what? Come off it. And then they say, I've missed out on that. It did, it did turn out to be worth X. Um, I'm going to go in and play, pay X plus Y. Um, and journalists who may have started off with a kind of very cynical attitude then wanted to cover these companies and wanted to believe their stories. But the story that you were looking for was, my God, these young guys are suddenly worth so much money so quickly. Absolutely. And we'd seen what happened uh, in the United States. I mean, I, I, coincidentally, I happened to be in New York for a couple of weeks in the mid-90s when the Netscape IPO happened. I think 95, 96. 95, yeah. Yeah. And I was just on a posting to New York for two brief weeks when that happened. And that was the real signal that something extraordinary was afoot. And uh, it took two or three more years for that to sort of spread in a much smaller scale to the UK. There were lots of sort of attempts to kind of impersonate that success in the UK or, or reproduce it, down to things like Click Mango which was trying to sell vitamins. A health kind of startup, you know, of which, of course, these days there are a zillion of them. Yeah, with a, a kind of very uncertain offering, a very vague business plan, but Joanna Lumley promoting it, as far as I remember. That's right. Two quite wealthy young men from quite a privileged background behind it. Um, and all the trappings of a uh, of a dot com startup of those days, i.e., we're going to make a lot of money. We're not entirely sure how, but we're going to grow rapidly, and you need to get in and invest in us before it's too late. I mean, again, from the media point of view, part of the problem I think was that they were willing to be covered uh, extensively before the website was there or there was anything to sell. And I think the same was probably true of last minute, that all this publicity was not really productive in terms of 
selling whatever product they were going to eventually come up with? Well, you've got to realise there are two markets there. There are actual customers and consumers, and then there are investors. And I think the investors were by far the most important market for these people. And you could, could say justifiably so, because uh, if we look today at what's happened over the last five or ten years in Silicon Valley, the huge effort by the likes of Uber has been to convince investors, convince venture capital firms of their growth story. And that has worked out hugely well for them. And on a much, much smaller scale, that's what those tiny startups in London were trying to do in the, in the late 90s, convince investors that they had a story that was you know, obviously tiny at the moment, but was going to be huge. And they were going to build a giant audience which would uh, produce a great return for investors. Tech Business History with this week's guest, Rory Kathleen-Jones. Perhaps the sort of purest form of hype around this time was First Tuesday, which brought everybody together, but also had hopes of being a hugely valuable company in itself. Yes, that was extraordinary. You know, uh, I think I read about it at the time, a, a wine and cheese party that thinks it's worth 60 million quid. Um, so it was, it was uh, an impressive networking venture. People were desperate to go there. Uh, you had different coloured badges, as far as I remember. And the, the, the people with the, a certain colour badge that denoted they were... Uh, investors were kind of besieged by these young people with with uh, with stories to sell, um, but the people behind First Tuesday were convinced that they had happened on a dot com business of their own that they could um, monetize and sell a great story around. And when you think maybe they were not so wrong, maybe this is all a matter of timing, because what they were talking about was in effect. A social network and social networking was massively in its infancy then but has turned out to be not a bad business for a few people since then right exactly um i mean there were some classic tales like michael smith of firebox and his friends from wales who came to first tuesday got some money without really even knowing what a business plan was and really haven't looked back Yes, Michael Smith is a, one of the great characters of this. Um, he was a, a young, shaggy-haired dude, basically, with, uh, with his mates setting up this business called Firebox.com, which was basically selling gadgets online. Managed to convince investors that, you know, effectively, a little online retailer that was never going to be huge, was going to be huge, and, and off he went. But he's had an extraordinary career because that, that business nearly died. He managed to keep it going through the dot-com collapse. He then started a much bigger business called Mind Candy, uh, which was behind the hit game Moshi Monsters and was you know, in London sort of second coming as a, a dot-com capital. It was very big five or six years ago. That faded and he has just, uh, in the last few months, announced that he's recent business, which is a, a mindfulness business based in San Francisco, of course, mindfulness and meditation app, has now got unicorn status. It's a billion-dollar business. 
So he's, he's finally made it. So, I mean, in a way, it's, it's too easy. It's, it's simplistic to say money was thrown at people, they all went bust. End of story, isn't it? It is. I mean, uh, there were a lot of bad ideas, uh, a, a very low level of analysis by investors who, you know, went from being incredibly rigorous to kind of just how much can we give you uh, and then back again. But there were ideas that were born there and there were people drawn into entrepreneurship who hadn't been before. So there was a beneficial effect in the long run. Do you think that um, there was also a factor that it seemed like young people would know about this stuff and the older people with the money were kind of trying to catch up with what the internet really meant and what it, where it was going and that there was a sort of brief moment there where being young and just half a step ahead perhaps in understanding it was a huge advantage that before or since has been lost somehow. That was obviously the case. The 40, 50-somethings in the city were woefully ignorant about this technology, as I think they admit themselves. Um, and at first, deeply sceptical, and then came round to the idea that they needed to be in there. Everybody needed to be in It's like any uh, trend in, in investment. Uh, there's a, there comes a sort of tipping point when suddenly, from scepticism, you just cannot avoid being in there. And then you look around for who knows about this stuff, and it's young people. Uh, young people who were, you know, the first digital natives, as you call them. And so those people became incredibly valuable for a while. So why did it all suddenly go wrong and everyone lose confidence? It all went wrong because this is... This was a global phenomenon, and the the price of these companies, certainly the quoted companies, went to such a level that it was completely unsustainable. And people had been saying that for months and months and months. The prophets of doom had been out there, you know, people talking about irrational exuberance and so on. But then on the other side of the equation, there were people saying, if that's what you think, it, it just shows you don't get it. Exactly. And there come, uh, I mean, interpreting the psychology of a bubble is, is a difficult business. We've seen the same thing with um, mine based on far less with cryptocurrencies, something like Bitcoin recently. Um, but there comes a moment when people look over the edge and don't like what they see and the air comes out and it becomes self-fulfilling. It's just the, the old balance between greed and fear, really. Yeah, um, and eventually fear comes in and you get what some, sometimes a, a correction and sometimes a full-blown collapse, which is what happened in this case. Obviously, you know, the whole thing was on a much bigger scale in the United States. So when the Nasdaq began to plunge, and it was virtually the day of the lastminute.com float, then that contagion spread very quickly across the Atlantic and... It wasn't so much uh, share prices collapsing, although they were, but, because, but there were so few uh, quoted companies here. But the, the, the people who were going along to First Tuesday and um, 
offering to back these young startups um, became much less keen on doing so. But what do you think is the sort of cultural legacy of that period where even if people weren't involved, they were thinking about starting businesses and making money and stuff? I think there is a huge cultural legacy. I think it went together with uh, ideas like um, you know, popular TV programmes, uh, The Apprentice these days and Dragon's Den, in a change of attitudes towards entrepreneurship and towards running businesses. And people, particularly perhaps people coming out of uh, universities who had all wanted to go into steady uh, employment with major banks or maybe the civil service, suddenly saw an opportunity and, and it was cool. It, it had never been cool to go into business before. You know, this country was very sniffy about it. And I think that changed radically because of how attractive some of these people were. And you make the point in your book that it was really a rather privileged slice of society who were able to front up these companies rather than what we like to think of as a sort of democratisation of business. Yes, I mean, for the most part it was, you know, Oxbridge graduates or people with maybe parents who had a bit of money to help them on the Many of them already knew each other. Yeah, there were, it was a quite small and tight-knit community, mostly based in London, a little bit happening in Cambridge where perhaps more sustainable, proper technology businesses were being born. But it was quite flaky in some ways, quite fluffy and flaky. But some of the people that came out of it have turned out to be you know, much more substantial. Perhaps what was happening was the kind of people who would anyway have gone into business a bit later or been titans of industry in their 40s and 50s got the chance to do that in their 20s instead. TBH, Tech Business History, with Charles Miller. So we haven't talked about the one that is perhaps the most extreme example of the whole story, both in terms of lots of money and massive failure, which is Boo.com. What was that? That was fantastic. That was an online fashion retailer. And again, it was an idea that was, you know, a perfectly good one and was a precursor to things that were incredibly successful. But they had too much money uh, and not enough sense, frankly. It was started by two Swedes, uh, Ernst Malmsten and Kaiser Leander, a glamorous couple from, uh, who'd already started a, an online bookstore together. And they managed to convince uh, the venture capital world to put, I think, something like $150 million behind them, which was huge for London at that time. Uh, and they spent it in all sorts of extraordinary ways. They had a, an office in Carnaby Street, just a few yards from where we're talking, full of young people designing this website. They, the, the, the classic moment was when they flew a hairdresser over from New York to style the avatar on the front page of the website. Just an animated character. Yeah, a Miss Boo who was going to welcome people to the Boo.com shopping experience. And obviously that was quite costly. And the trouble was, when they launched, the the homepage of the website took most people about eight minutes to load. And you couldn't even get it on Macs at all, I think. Yeah, it was 
uh, it was just too far ahead of its time, frankly. They were designing a, a 2010 shopping experience in 2000. It's interesting, though, isn't it? Because in a way, you can sort of understand why they went wrong, because there was a great pressure on the startups to spend the money as fast as you could to sort of this, this idea of the land grab, yeah. that whoever got there first, first mover advantage, w- w- was going to be entrenched, you know, forever. Yes, and, you know, if you look back in dot-com history, obviously, you know, Amazon is the great example of this. Amazon spent years and years and years losing loads of money and being with analysts saying it's about to go bust and did grab the land to extraordinary effect and become the world's most valuable company. But in the end, I think it's hard to avoid concluding that the UK has had a sort of disappointing track record with online businesses. We haven't got anything comparable to eBay or Amazon or anything like that. I mean, do you think that was inevitable? You say the UK has been disappointing. Everywhere is disappointed in itself when they compare themselves with Silicon Valley. Large parts of the United States complain that they, they should be more like Silicon Valley. The UK hasn't got those giant companies, but it has got quite a vibrant tech investment scene, the most vibrant in Europe. So we haven't done that badly. We shouldn't underestimate ourselves. And we have, until recently, had people from all over Europe coming here to start businesses. Look at the, the fintech scene, um, companies like um, TransferWise and so on, started by Estonians. So London did establish itself as a place where tech firms would feel welcome and could grow. Finally, I'm wondering whether... Do you think, historically, that entrepreneurship during the dot-com era was sort of the purest example we've got of what that would consist of? Or was it actually an anomaly which we shouldn't look to as what entrepreneurship is all about? I think entrepreneurship in the dot-com bubble, which, as we said, was incredibly short, had good and bad sides which the good side is the sheer aspirational element of it and the enthusiasm and the energy and also the youth around it the the bad side was the sheer wrong-headedness of a lot of the analysis the lack of realism about what is a business plan and what a successful business needs to achieve in terms of its balance sheet and so on so it's, it's a very mixed picture. Do you think that it was easier to be a successful entrepreneur during the dot-com era or more difficult? I think it was briefly easier. Uh, it was br- briefly easier to be uh, a successful entrepreneur or perceived as, as such by the media and by yes, your friends. Yes, it depends whether you count success as you know, lots of money to spend or building a business that is in the end profitable. Yeah. So briefly, you had the possibility that young entrepreneurs could build huge and sustainable businesses. But sadly, very few of them managed to do that, either because of their own failings or because the window of opportunity was just so narrow. Do you personally look back on that era as a sort of fun 
exciting time. It was hugely fun. It was hugely fun in terms of journalism too. I, I'd been a business journalist and was frankly rather bored with reporting Marks and Spencer's annual results for the one o'clock news. Uh, and this was a completely different atmosphere. These people were also much more accessible, more interesting, and just generally better stories than the the tired old titans of British industry. And you could get yourself and your reports uh, on, the, on the news more easily with this sort of material, I guess. Exactly, exactly. I mean, there was a lot of resistance at first. I mean, people you know, not believing that these were real businesses. But um, for a brief moment, you could get on the news. The day, the day lastminute.com floated was you know, a big news story on all the big news bulletins. Is the cryptocurrency the novelty of cryptocurrency over the past 18 months or whatever, does that, is that comparable at all to the dot-com days in terms of the media coverage? Um, it is comparable. It's gone on longer. The bubble has gone on longer. And there has been... We've got a completely different media landscape these days. And there is a huge amount of online and social media backing of this bubble uh, and a lot of journalism, frankly, of an incredibly low quality, um, punting this this concept without, I think, much to back it up. Brilliant. Thank you very much, Rory. Good. Thanks so much to Rory Kaplan-Jones. Please join me for another edition of Tech Business History next week. Until then, from me, Charles Miller, goodbye. <laughs>